Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Make it plain. Make it plain. M.I.P. With Masamela Matfumo. Mark Thompson. Make it plain. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, M.I.P. is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, I thought we'd begin this morning with the breaking news really of yesterday. Uh, And that is that Steve Bannon has been indicted and arrested, uh, taken into custody. And who better to talk to, who, whom we've not had a chance to talk to in some time. So this is great. A former assistant U.S. attorney, Glenn Kirshner, joins us now. Glenn, how are you, buddy? I pray you and your loved ones are healthy and safe in this pandemic. Yeah, Rev, I haven't seen you in a minute. It's great to see you again. And I, I hope uh, your family as well also. Yeah, we're, we're all hanging in here, man. Thankfully, we're all well. So, Glenn. What, what happened? And wait a minute. Is it true that the Postal Service arrested him? <laughs> if that's not some poetic justice, I don't know what is. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the unsung heroes of criminal investigations in the work that I did for 30 years was the USPIS, the United States Postal Inspection Service. You know, I worked with all of the federal agencies and a lot of the local agencies too. So in 10 seconds, I can probably run through FBI, DEA, ATF, Park Police, Capitol Police, Secret Service, Federal Protective Service, Metro Police, Amtrak Police, Postal Police, Smithsonian Police. So the Postal Inspection Service, 
They are a crack outfit of investigators. And anytime we have, you know, it doesn't have to be a, um, a crime that centers around the postal system or using the mails to facilitate a fraudulent scheme. They are involved in so many aspects of our, of our other investigations. And I am so glad that they are getting their props as part of this takedown, FBI, U.S. Postal Inspection Service in the Southern District of New York, of Steve Bannon and three of his criminal co-conspirators in, you know, what is not casual crime. This is a concerted effort. This is uh, corruption at its worst. They were bilking millions and millions and millions of dollars from people who were donating it to the build the wall fund. I mean, who have we heard talking about wanting to build a wall, right? Right. And so then they were running this money through, uh, Bannon was running it through another sham nonprofit that he set up and he had bogus contracts. He had bogus vendors. I mean, this was a concerted effort to build people out of millions of dollars. Um, And so again, now you've got Barr and his machinations. Is the SDNY going to actually be able to uh, see this prosecution through? Yeah, if they weren't able to, they would not have indicted and arrested these four men. And it's interesting, Rev, because they arrested these men in four different locations, three different states, This was not a negotiated turn-in or surrender, as we often see with white-collar criminals. This this was something where they wanted to surprise these people, maybe because they thought they would flee, maybe because they thought they would destroy evidence. But, you know, one of the big-ticket questions is, did Bill Barr approve this, or was Bill Barr walled out of this because of a potential conflict? I don't know the answer to that right now. I tend to think Bill Barr knew about this and may have even approved it because he is over the top of the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office. All 94 U.S. Attorney's Offices. I worked for the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office for nearly quarter of a century. They are all part of the Department of Justice. So Bill Barr is in charge of all this. So I suspect he knew this was coming. He may have even approved it. Which here's if we pull back to 30,000 feet, I think a lot of us have felt like the rule of law was dead. But now I think we're seeing it was just in the coma and the rule of law just opened its eyes today and it's starting to look around. And I hope the rule of law begins clearing its throat and going after the other criminals in Donald Trump's orbit. But, you know, this was a good start. Um, So is this the same, Glenn, as what is known as mail fraud? So this, there are two charges that were indicted. One is conspiracy to money launder, right? They were laundering money through these bogus nonprofits and putting it in their own pockets. And I love that there are public statements we are now seeing from Steve Bannon saying, this is an all volunteer effort. We're not taking a penny. No, you're not taking a penny. You're taking millions and millions of dollars from these people is what you're taking. And then the second charge is, um, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, basically using the mails for a fraudulent scheme. Each one of these counts has a maximum punishment of 20 years in prison by statute. However, we all know that the federal sentencing guidelines come in much lower than that 
federal statutory maximum punishment. So Bannon could be looking at a number of years. And here is one of the big questions that we have to ask ourselves. What's Bannon going to do? Mm. Is Bannon going to flip on the president or is Bannon going to play the Roger Stone game and hold out for a pardon? But you know what? Let Bannon do what Bannon's going to do. Bannon knows where Trump's bodies are buried, figuratively speaking. I hope Bannon cooperates fully and truthfully and tells law enforcement and tells the Department of Justice all about Donald Trump's crimes. But you know what? There are three other defendants here. And those three other defendants, they're not marquee defendants. We don't recognize their names. Let me add a footnote that one of the defendants' name, his name is Timothy Shea. That also happens to be the former dirty U.S. attorney from the District of Columbia who did Roger Stone a favor in his case and who tried to kill Mike Flynn's case. But it's a different Timothy Shea. It is not oh, okay. that Timothy Shea. So, um, but those three lesser players, Rev, you know the prosecutors are going to be pushing them to cooperate against Bannon so they can lock him in in a solid case and then try to flip Bannon. But, you know, he's got that pardon to play. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to come in this one. So, so before we go, I'd be remiss if I didn't get your thoughts on um, the New York AG, Tish James, and um, what she may have in store. But just the general feeling that one of Trump's fears is that if he's taken out of office, he'll be open to more than one indictment. Is, is, that, is that accurate? You think that's a possibility? Yeah, I think the reason he is willing to pull out all the stops and cheat to get reelected by any means necessary, it's because it's the only chance he has at staying out of prison, both <laughs> in state criminal prosecutions and in federal prosecutions. And what we just learned yesterday as well is that remember how the Supreme Court handed down that decision saying President A. King, go back to the New York courts and, and District Attorney Cy Vance, he probably gets a hold of your tax records and your financial information. Well, just yesterday, the judge in New York ruled that, yeah, those complaints that Donald Trump and his lawyers just made after the Supreme Court sent the case back to New York, they're not going to work either. So the judge basically said Deutsche Bank or Mazars, I forget which one it was, give over Donald Trump's tax information to Cy Vance in New York. So that one's on too. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Kirshner, former assistant U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia. Always a pleasure to see you and talk to you, my friend. We've got to stay in closer touch, especially now uh, with all that's going on. So we thank you, my friend. Yeah, it's going to heat up, Rev. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. All right. Those of you who watch the DNC convention on Tuesday night saw something we've never seen before. A whole group of people delivering a keynote address practically simultaneously. It was very well done, very well uh, produced. Um, and we heard from a number of up and coming uh, Democratic elected officials of whom we all should be very, very proud. One of whom joins us now on Make It Plain. She was elected to the 
state senate in the state of Tennessee last year. She hails from Memphis. Senator Ramesh Akbari joins us now. First of all, Senator, am I pronouncing your name correctly? It's actually Akbari like Blackberry, but you oh, really? killed the first name. Yeah. Akbari. Okay. Very yeah. good. How yeah, really, are you? I think Congratulations. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. I said, I think my whole family's pronouncing it wrong, though. I've been told it's Akbari, but we say Akbari. <laughs> where, is, where is that name from? It is Persian. So my dad is from Iran. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, you met my mom in 1977 at a disco in Memphis, and the rest is history. <laughs> your mom's your mom's a Memphian. Yes, born and raised. <laughs> so, full disclosure, mm -hmm. my paternal roots and some of my maternal roots are in Memphis. I grew up in Nashville. Oh wow! All right. <laughs> when I was in, um, uh, um, I guess middle school, beginning of high school in Nashville, I was a page for the Tennessee House of Representatives. Very cool. Uh, I worked very closely with uh, the late Harper Brewer oh. and your predecessor, Lois DeBerry. Wow. Very cool. wow. That was many years ago. I know I look like I'm Gen Z, but that... <laughs> um, yeah. My family home in Memphis, my father's family home is still on Mississippi Boulevard. Wow. <laughs> Ten siblings all went to either Booker T. Washington or St. Anthony's. Oh, wow. My mother's mother, my grandmother's younger sister, grew up in Nashville, went to Tennessee State like most of my family did. And then she went to Memphis to teach at Central High School. Frances Johnson taught at Central for a number of years. And she married the principal of Hamilton High, for 25 years, Oliver Johnson. Wow. So, those, are my, those are my Memphis. Oh, Hamilton was in my house district. Central is in my Senate district. Oh, you are Memphis. You have Memphis roots through and through. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, that's why I was, was, was so happy uh, to talk to you. So, again, Tuesday night, tell us how that must have felt. And I saw you tweeted, Ava DuVernay directed yeah. you. No, 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 no. I had a little figurine. You directed. I was. I was. Um. It was more like a joke. Like I had to have my little figurine there. My Ava figurine. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> can all those didn't direct me in real life. <laughs> I know, but see, let, let me just help you out. Even when I say something like, you don't have to correct it because everybody would have thought she really did. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I saw the picture. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I was just gonna leave it out there. You know what I'm saying? Right over my head. <laughs> So, so how did that even come about? How did that come to fruition for you all to do that? Well, I got a phone call from the Biden campaign, and I was pretty shocked because I spoke in 2016, but I knew that it was going to be virtual. There weren't going to be as many speakers. Um, so then I hear we're going to be a part of a collaboration. And to be honest, the phone cut out a little bit, so I really didn't hear any other details. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll look for the email. Uh, and then <laughs> I found out that um, it was going to be a collaboration. And it was going to be a keynote of sorts. So it was really neat. Um, it was very different from actually being on a stage. But, uh, you know, we're in this virtual environment. And it's, uh, it's something that we adapted to easily. Uh, so it was, it was a cool experience. <laughs> oh, no, it was. And it was, it was great to see. How are you feeling about the campaign, the ticket, and particularly having a black woman 
on the ticket? You know, I'm excited about the ticket. I really thought that yeah, from the beginning, Joe Biden really had the experience uh, to, to make things happen. But when he added Senator Harris, it was like, I was, so let me paint the picture for you. I'm sitting in a committee room, uh, the Commerce Committee in, in Nashville. I'm the only black woman on the committee. And my phone goes crazy because he has selected Senator Harris. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is such a big deal, right? Like we have a black woman, a South Asian woman who is on the ticket, who, I mean, I was just ecstatic. I mean, so excited. And the representation matters. You know, you have black women who have carried the Democratic Party for so long. And to have someone at the top of the ticket, that's a big deal. Uh, as Joe would say, that's a big effing deal. <laughs> Y'all said that Tuesday night, too. I thought that was yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, when I got the script, I'm like, okay, so we have a bunch of elected officials who are supposed to say, that's a big effing deal. <laughs> and my mom is watching me film, and I'm like, that's a big effing deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's great. It's funny how times change. I remember when Joe Biden first said that. And, you know, it was a big deal. And Barack Obama even seemed a little embarrassed, you know, you don't want to do it. But now to hear everybody say it just out loud like that. Yeah, leaning into it, leaning into it. <laughs> That's great. And it must also, you know, mean some of you, I mean, we're first meeting and I'm hearing about your lineage, the diversity within your own lineage, um, um, African-American, I presume, and Persian. I mean, you were sort of a Kamala Harris for Tennessee before it was a Kamala Harris for the nation. <laughs> yeah, definitely bring a diverse flavor to the Tennessee General Assembly. Um, I think people didn't know what to make of me when I first got elected. It was kind of hilarious. They really wanted to figure out, have we elected the first Muslim? And I said, no, you haven't. But if you had, it would be a good thing. So <laughs> miss me with all that nonsense. Right. Yeah, they, they didn't know what to make of me. They butchered my first and last name. Uh, they sent out a little email to all the Republicans, it's kind of hilarious, saying it's, it's Hackberry like the Hackberry tree. So forever, a ton of them called me Hackberry. Mm -hmm. And so I told them, I said, no, it's Hackberry like Blackberry. I said, but if you call me Blackberry, I'm going to call you a racist. So. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so you can obviously then relate to some of the things Kamala Harris is facing right now. Can you? And, and let me ask you about this too, because I'm gonna tell you now, you know, some of our own trip, you know, I just, I've been talking to some of my brethren, some black men, so y'all are tripping. We need to get this together. Did you have, have you had that experience in your life, even with, with fellow black folk yourself, you know, where are you from? Who are you? Are you really one of us? Have you had to navigate that too? <laughs> well, so I didn't realize, because, you know, when you grow up and you identify and you feel like you're a black American and then you get around people who don't really know you. So when I went to college, um, it was interesting because I remember I was out. I was the president of the Association of Black Students and the vice president. She was a uh, mix of black and white. And apparently we were talking about like black issues on campus and all that. And this guy walked up to us in the store. And he was super offended. And I'm like, listen, we're all black here, okay? So uh, this is ridiculous. And I remember being at a comedy show with my sister. I have a twin sister. Mm -hmm. And so the guy was like, can all the Puerto Ricans give, give a shout out? And he's looking at us like, raise your hand. All the, uh, right, all the Hawaiians. And we're like, he kept going on and on. And finally he said, well, what are you? And my sister said, we're black and Persian. He said, ah, oh, it's all good. Just a little bit of sand in the motherland. <laughs> 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 so I had to 
deal with that, you know, kind of, you know, roll it off with humor. But um, I think that, uh, that it's, it's interesting when you have multiple identities. And I think we all really do. Um, but more so, um, I think it's also being a woman. That's one of those things where people are like, hey, wait a minute, you need to wait your turn or you shouldn't do this. Like when I decided to run for Senate, I had a lot of my male colleagues who thought, hmm, maybe you should, you should have talked to me first before you made this decision. Or, and I'm thinking, I talked to people, I talked to my family, I talked to my tribe of women who support me. And it was just, it's ridiculous. I think you have like that double edge. One, people who just don't think you're black enough, which is crazy. Uh, and then also people who think, hey, you're a woman, you need to wait your turn. This is or even for me, when I first got there, I was younger, I was 29. So they definitely thought, mm, sit down, little girl, learn a few things. And I, I mean, I understand. I understand when you get a seat at the table, you don't have to flip it. You know, you can learn and adapt and bring them all over to your side. I, I'm with it. I, I know when you're new, you should just tear stuff up. But you should also make sure your voice is heard. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, I'm, I find it interesting, too, as I'm sure you do. I am hearing, especially from women um, across all nationalities and ethnic groups and cultures um, who see uh, themselves in Kamala Harris, too, wherever they're from. Because, I mean, let's face it, you're right. Most of us are more diverse than either we realize or we'd like to admit. Right. You know, sure. <laughs> that's the deal. So you feeling confident about this November? I am. I think that people are ready for a change. I think that when you look at the amount of fundraising that occurred after Senator Harris was added to the ticket, I mean, you know what they say, men lie, women lie, but numbers don't lie. So that was pretty impressive. Uh, and I think that beyond the initial announcement bump, it, there will be longevity there. I mean, she's going to mop the floor with Mike Pence. We already know that. She's not afraid to ask the tough questions, and she's been able to balance that stigma of coming across as an angry black woman, which is so unfortunate and aggravating even still. Um, and I think that it just resonates. I mean, we're facing three tremendous issues in our country from the, and, and, and Stacey Abrams highlighted this last night, from the global pandemic that was so poorly handled by the Trump administration, rolling into an economic crisis, and certainly the issues of racial injustice that have been raised where people are in the streets crying out, this is not right, our country should be different. And then you have Donald Trump tear gassing them so that he can take a photo with a Bible that he had upside down. Mm -hmm. I mean, folks are ready for a change. I think that we have states that are in play now like Georgia and Texas, and the cool thing about it, because I'm in the state house, so I understand, they have the potential to flip those state houses, those legislatures. And that's how redistricting occurs. So that, I mean, they are in charge of redistricting. So I, I'm excited about all the possibilities at the top of the ticket and down ballot. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what about our sister, oh my God, who just won the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate yeah. in Tennessee? Do we, yes. have, do we have a shot with that, Senator? Uh, Tennessee is very red. That's, uh, it's really difficult. Um, it is a presidential year, so anything can happen. I mean, Marquita, Marquita Bradshaw made history, first black woman to be the nominee for a major party in the statewide race. Um, she's very active in the community. Uh, the environment, environmental justice is a big push for her. And I think people are starting to wrap their minds around it. Initially, they were supporting another candidate. He had a lot of party and, you know, um, for the support of the institution, per se. And he had about $2 million, which is nothing in a statewide race. But she had like 12000 and she won. 
And I think it also highlighted Memphis has the highest concentration of Democratic voters. And if you ignore Memphis, it is to your own peril because you will not win the state. Yeah. So, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And and so what are, um, I know Tennessee is very red, but what are some of the main issues that Tennesseans are most concerned about this election season? Honestly, they're concerned about health care, and it's been that way for the past couple of years. Our Republican legislature refuses to expand Medicaid. We're one of the few states. See, now you have like 12 states left. It was different when President Obama was in office and they could say, we don't want Obamacare. Southern states aren't doing this, but they are. And now with this pandemic, you have people who have to drive an hour, 45 minutes to a hospital. I mean, that is absurd. So that's a big issue. Surprisingly, medicinal marijuana pulls very well. Vanderbilt has done several studies. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to push across that line because we don't have a state income tax. So being able to regulate and sell this product could really help us. Um, also, criminal justice reform, and that's a bipartisan issue, shockingly. I mean, on one hand, last week, the legislature decided to criminalize protesting, which was ridiculous and just absurd and just wrong. Um, and then also, on the other hand, though, they're saying we want to completely reorganize our criminal laws and reduce sentencing for some of our lower offenses. So those are the three big issues we're dealing with. And of course, the economy. I mean, our minimum wage lines with federal government, seven twenty-five an hour. That's not enough to raise a family. That is what we call the working poor, what Dr. King fought so bravely for. People who work a full, full job and they still qualify for benefits. I mean, that is not, uh, that's not a place that we want to be. So those are the issues. Um, hopefully we can pick up some seats and see what happens. Speaking of protests, uh, I'm certain you've encountered some of my friends, uh, Justin John Jones, Yes, yes. At Ida B. Wells Plaza. Mm, yep. They've been holding it down. It's, so I'm, I'm sure that's why some of the Republicans wanted to criminalize protests, I take it. Oh, Justin is their public enemy number one. So, but Justin has been out there every single day. I think they're over 60 days now. And they did. They have, I mean, they had some canopies set up. And they were on the, uh, so part of the Ida B. Wells Plaza now. Three canopies. It was not these massive amounts of people. It wasn't any sort of violence going on, peacefully protesting. And they made camping out on state property a felony. So if they left those tents up after 10 o'clock, they could be, depending on the discretion of the DA, convicted of a felony, losing their right to vote, to get student loans, to even possess a weapon, which is so important in this state. So it was crazy. I mean, I just, I could not be quiet on that one. I just had to, I mean, I, I <laughs> you know, so it was a rough week, but yeah. They were trying to fight back against Justin, and he's doing a great job raising the alarm and not letting them get away with anything. Yeah. Senator Eggberry, make the case for Biden-Harris in November. But you know what? What would you say, how would you make the case to um, a voter in Tennessee who's kind of on the fence? I mean, we want to flip a few people. I don't know, Tennessee probably we now go blue, but who knows? I mean, folk might just, I, I'm hoping folk, even white voters will wake up and realize that dude is killing us. And when people don't get their medicine in the mail, Senator Agberry, I don't, you know, I don't know. Folk might just say, okay, I'm done. But, but what would you say to those voters in Tennessee that might still be on the fence? I'd say look around, you know, especially those, agriculture is a big deal in our state. 
and those tariffs deeply hurt farmers. They've had to completely reallocate and reorganize how their family business structures. Look around. You don't have a hospital in your community. You don't have the ability to make money selling the product that your family has grown for generations. Nothing has changed. Our roads aren't better. We don't have a comprehensive transportation plan. We don't have health care. The economy has not gotten better for folks on Main Street. And on the other token, Donald Trump is embarrassing the hell out of us. I mean, like, beyond whatever you believe in politics, this is not an issue of Republican versus Democrat. This is an issue for someone who has the moral compass to do what's right for our country. And he has proven time and time again, he doesn't have it. Yeah. So I tell him that, wake up. <laughs> I'd say it in a much more diplomatic way, but definitely I, I let him know. <laughs> we are so proud of you. Uh, and proud of the fact that you're a Memphian. It's so good to talk to you. Give Memphis my love. I will. <laughs> and uh, continue fighting the good fight, as I know you will, okay? Thank you, thank you. Good to talk to you. <laughs> All right, good to talk to you too. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, another one of the Democratic Party convention keynote speakers from Tuesday night. There were 17 uh, up and coming, as they were described, keynote speakers. Um, and we have another one that we're going to chat with uh, today on Make It Plain. We're happy to have with us from the state of Pennsylvania, State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta. Malcolm, Representative Malcolm, greetings, brother. Welcome to Make It Plain. How are you? Thank you so much, Mark. Excited, excited to be here. And thank you for all you do and continuing to just, you know, always using your platform to lift up uh, Black voices, young voices. Well, well thank you, brother. Uh, well, congratulations on Tuesday night at the convention. Tell us how that how that came about. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you again. And um, you know, I think it really does speak to, and the vice president has talked about, you know, being a transitional figure and lifting up young voices. And I think that, um, you know, that's reflective, obviously, in his pick of Senator Harris, who yesterday made made history herself. Um, she accepted the vice presidential nomination. Um, and also with that group, right, me included, of 17 folks from across the, across the country um, and from across the party. And, you know, when I got the call from, from the campaign and say, you know, the VP had put together a list of folks he wanted to see, you know, you take a little step back and you feel a great sense of honor um, to be among, you know, a long list of folks who've given that, that keynote from Barbara Jordan to obviously uh, President Obama, uh, Julian Castro and others. Well, and when you think about that, yeah, I mean, sometimes this is a stepping stone or rung on the ladder. To, to higher and greater heights when it comes to politics. Did, did that cross your mind as well? Do you think you might run for president like President Obama? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm running for re-election right now to the state house. So, you know, you gotta be focused on, 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 what's, on what's in front of you. And I, I, I will say this, my hope is that people start paying more attention to what's happening at the state and local level um, you know, because I say to people, you know, if you care about criminal justice reform, for example, then you ought to be really and intently focused on what your governor's talking about, on who your attorney general is, on what your state legislators, um, what their priorities are. Um, and so my hope is that 
you know, the sort of national attention that's come from this um, can be redirected to where I think it's most valuable. And that's on what's happening at the state and local level. Every problem is not going to be solved in the Oval Office. Many problems are being created and solved <laughs> in state capitals all across the country. My brother, music to my ears. I say this to the younger generation all the time. For example, uh, we aren't going to uh, tweet uh, away uh, criminal justice problems and law enforcement issues. That is at the level. And yep. you're not engaged at the look. Police are governed locally. Uh, yep. For that matter, Brother Malcolm, um, boards of elections are local. Absolutely. So police, um, criminal justice, uh, uh, voting rights, you've got to get into what's happening and have a local movement on the ground, which unfortunately to some people is, is not sexy, is not as celebrity. I want to be a national leader, but Dr. King didn't start out as a national leader. He started out in one little town called Montgomery. Um, so that's a point right. we're taking. You mentioned criminal justice. Yep. Is is that one of your priority issues in Pennsylvania? A absolutely. You know, we've 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 made some some progress. Um, you know, on the clean slate legislation, for for example, uh, my colleague Representative Jordan Harris um, helped champion and, and push through uh, that. You know actually expunges folks' records after a certain period of time without them having to, you know, do anything, which is, has become a, a national model. Um, but just more recently, I think, to, uh, you know, the protests and the movement around Black lives and how we reform our police, you know, very much in the spirit of John Lewis and Fannie Lou Hamer and my grandfather, Muhammad Kenyatta, and many other nonviolent, uh, you know, civil rights leaders, um, we actually took over the speaker's rostrum in Harrisburg and staged a sit-in to demand that we get some movement on some of these police reform bills. And we actually had four bills that they amended into two bills, um, you know, that made some, that made some progress. Um, and so these are the types of issues, because I know particularly in this national campaign, you know, we talk a lot about the 94, you know, crime bill. And that was, you know, not the perfect piece of legislation. But what most people, I think, fail to recognize sometimes is most crimes are state crimes. Most people who are in jail are in state county prison mm -hmm. and so it is going to be again in these state capitals where we have a real opportunity to talk about the liberation um, that we need to see in our communities to talk about restructuring our criminal justice system um, from the paradigm right now where you really get the justice you can afford not the justice you deserve indeed indeed uh, our brother malcolm mentioned his uh his father folks muhammad Kenyatta, who was active in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, right, his early civil rights years, um, and also ran against no good uh, Frank Rizzo for mayor, didn't he? That's right. That's right. Uh, an activist, and, and we remember him fondly. But Malcolm, I'm glad you went there, because we got to talk, brother, for real talk. Too many of our black men and many of our millennials, including young women, are being targeted for disinformation and propaganda against our sister Kamala Harris because of her criminal justice record. And, and I'm just, I mean, I'm talking to some of these folk, I'm trying to deal with it, but I think we have to figure out a way to address it. And I know we can't solve all of that here, but let me ask you, what do you say to those um, uh, young women and men um, 
when, or what should we say, when they raise questions about uh, Senator Harris's criminal justice record and how do we get over to them the importance of still voting for this ticket? Yep. So I think I think it's I think it's two two twofold. Um, the the first piece is that we need to have a real conversation about her criminal justice record, a holistic conversation. Too often, what happens is people find you know one thing that they don't like in a whole body of work. And then say that you know this is who that person is when the reality is um she really was talking about i mean you can go back she was talking with our brother tavis smiley um you know back many years ago um i think it was a black uh black convention conversation they had people should go find it um a lot of the things that she was talking about as then attorney general are things that folks are out in the street right now marching to get elected officials to understand to get folks who are in uh, the criminal justice parts of our government to understand. She was talking about those things at a time when it was not popular. You know, when she created a statewide program to deal with recidivism, that's incredibly, um, that's incredibly impactful because we know that once our young people in particular get looped into the criminal justice system because the recidivism rates are so high, they end up getting locked into a cycle that really diminishes their, their, their possibilities. We also need to talk about the fact that black girls in particular are targeted at some of the highest rates for sex trafficking and other types of incredibly um, you know, damaging uh, behavior against women of color. And she was one of the leaders in this country of, of dealing with, with, with sex trafficking. We also have a lot of people who looked at what happened after the Great Recession, particularly people in my, you know, my generation who graduating college at the time, right? Or, just starting college and you not have a lot of opportunities available because people were seeing their homes being taken from them. She got the largest settlement from big banks for the behavior they exhibited during that crisis than any other person in the entire country. Billions of dollars back to people who had lost their homes in the subprime mortgage crisis. And the reason that matters is most of the folks who were targeted with these subprime mortgages were black folks. Mm -hmm. for black folks. Yeah. And so she really does have a history, I think, of, of being a progressive um, prosecutor. But I think this idea that we're going to fix the system by deciding we're not going to engage with it, I think is antithetical to what we really need to do. Let me, let me, let me make this point. Please. Empathy, or apathy, rather, is a justifiable response to being you know, effed over multiple times. That is a justifiable response. But we, we, we find ourselves in this situation where we have a very chicken or egg situation, right? The apathy that is generated from the lack of substantive policy change that we need to see, that apathy is actually in large part to blame for the lack of progress on the substantive issues that we need to see. And so it's one of these issues where my grandfather would say, everything is political. So when I hear people say, well, I don't do politics, my response to that is, well, politics does you. Politics does you. And you choosing not to engage in the system does not make you immune from the impacts of the decisions that those systems make. And so we have to get to a place where we recognize that they would not be working so hard from the Republicans to the Russians to disenfranchise, to miseducate, 
black and brown folks, particularly black and brown millennials, if they didn't recognize the power we had if we woke up and voted? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's that's very well said, um, my brother. Um, and you know, I, I'm I'm trying to talk to some black men. I hope that we are, are able to have uh, some more conversations uh, with black men. I may even want to do a couple town halls, and I and I think I'll probably want to um, invite you as well because we've got to we've got to talk about this. Anytime. And the other thing too, brother Malcolm, you say holistic. You know, nothing is easy. Things are complex and there's overlap. This is generational too. And what I think a, a lot of us um, are not realizing um, is that um, when it comes to the mid 90s and crime and all of that, it was some of our parents and elders who demanded a tougher stance on crime. Um, and people may look back over that now and say, well, maybe that was a mistake. And I think a lot of people realize how that was misused. But the fact of the matter is, that was a moment when our own community was very concerned about crime within our own community and safety. And then that was the era of, of crack and everything else. I remember when Lynn Bias died and how that literally changed everybody's attitude about everything. Um, and so... It's, speaking of the chicken and the egg, you know, it's, it's hard to judge people in an era that was that long ago and in a very different context. You, you know what I'm saying? But also from me, though, Malcolm, and we support this ticket, but the online traffic against the sister is far greater than any of the same discussion um, directed toward Joe Biden, or even Bernie Sanders. And I remind people, y'all, that's, that's for a reason. So you, you can't hold an African-American woman to a higher level of accountability than you would hold even a white man. And they voted for the crime bill. So I just try to point that out to people, that even when it comes to social media, social media is, is good and it's also bad, as you alluded to, we're targeted. Uh, not only is it a, a form for us to freely express ourselves, these are also forms where folks are freely uh, are free to expressly target us <laughs> and move us in a direction that's really not balanced. So I, I appreciate your answer to that, and 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 I hope we can continue to have dialogue about that. Pennsylvania, um, blue for sure. You think this November in terms of the presidential race? You know, I, I hope I hope so, and and, and I think so, and, and and for and for this reason, and I said something similar to uh, to, to Joy Reid yesterday. Donald Trump has led one of the most dysfunctional, divisive administrations we've we've ever seen. I mean, put 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 aside, you know, your politics for 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 a second, right? Even if you're not a progressive Democrat like me, even if you are a Republican, I think people are looking objectively and saying, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing. He does not know what he's doing. And so Pennsylvania, a lot of people don't recognize our biggest industry is agriculture in Pennsylvania. Our dairy farmers have been decimated, decimated because of these, tra these trade wars. And we, we need to understand that these create our ag industry. It's not just the person who's milking the cow. There are all these downstream jobs that are being lost because of what he's done. And so it's had a ripple effect, 
not just in the central part of the, the, the state where a lot of these folks are, but across the Commonwealth, it's had a ripple effect. Pennsylvania is ground zero for this unemployment crisis that we're seeing as a result of the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, I've been saying that Donald Trump is dangerously dumb. He is dangerously dumb. Not only does he not know anything, he has completely removed anybody around him who has half a brain um, because of his own ineptitude and his ability to confront facts. And so Donald Trump said, and I believe he said it here in Philadelphia, well, almost four years ago, if not four years ago, what do you have to lose? I think he said, what the hell do you have to lose? And now we recognize that what we have to lose is potentially 41% of our black businesses that some studies say will never reopen because of this pandemic. What we have to lose is the 7,000 plus Pennsylvanians who've, who've died from this pandemic, folks who are coming home, laying in bed, missing that person who loves them best, who used to be who used to be with him. What we have to lose is the ability for our young people to go to school. And we recognize that as we move to this online learning, which is gonna be necessary because of this pandemic, it's black and brown kids who have the least access to the type of Wi-Fi and the other technological capabilities that they need from tablets to laptops to whatever it is to engage. And it's our black and brown kids who are gonna be behind in terms of their educational attainment and again, positioning them to follow their own dreams. And so I think people here in Pennsylvania are recognizing that there's a big gulf between the rhetoric of Donald Trump and the results of Donald Trump. And last time in 2016, we only had his, his, his rhetoric. This time we have a record and it's a record of failure. It's a record of shame. It's a disastrous record. Donald Trump was impeached once. I ought to think he'd be impeached again. And I think that we have to beat him in such a way that Every footnote in history says that folks across political spectrum, across the country, um, you know, stood up because President Obama made this point so passionately last night. And it's a point that we really have to hone in on. All these debates that we're having right now about who our government should serve, how our government should work, all those, all those things are moot if we don't have a democracy. Mm. And if Donald Trump gets another four years we will go the way of Turkey. We will go the way of Belarus. We will go the way of a lot of countries right now who have had thriving democracies that have seen them ripped away because folks decided, oh, I don't like anybody. Everybody's all the same. Everybody is not all the same. And we need to stop doing that. We can hold our friends accountable and say to Vice President Biden or to Senator Harris, hey, this is the direction we need to move in. But no Democrat is saying no health care. We're talking about how we deliver healthcare to everybody. And that's a debate we should have. No Democrat is saying that the criminal justice system is perfect. We're talking about how to address it. And so we need to recognize, and I hate being hyperbolic in this way because people start to tune out when you say this is the most important election. But I really do believe, um, as Brother Bernie Sanders said, the results of failure, if we do not beat Donald Trump, will be catastrophic in a way that I don't think we'll be able to quantify. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we talk about agriculture. You know, we're talking about white Pennsylvanians too. Um, maybe even some Republicans. Do Do you think they are ready? Because they often vote against their own interests. Are you getting Absolutely. a sense though that in this crisis, with the, the tariffs and all of that, and COVID, that you get a sense that they may be seriously considering actually voting in their best interests as opposed to voting against it? 
So, you know, it, I was heartened to see on the first night of the convention, there was actually a dairy farmer from Pennsylvania uh, who's a, he's still a registered Republican who said Donald Trump's policies have destroyed his farm. He might not be able to keep it. He's going to be voting for, for Joe Biden. And so that's an anecdotal you know, piece of evidence. But I think that that's helpful. I think the other thing is when we look at what happened in the 2016 elections. One of the sort of cross tabs in the polls, I know, you know, nerds like you and me, we like to look into the polls and dig into the dig into the details of it. But one of the things that I think is a little bit heartening, though, maybe not in the way that, that you'd expect, is that there is a contingent of people who look at both parties and say, I don't I don't like it at all. Right. These are people who vote, but they look at both parties with, you know, a, a jaded sort of view. In 2016, those folks who voted but didn't like either candidate voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. This time, you see the reverse, that there are a lot of people who are independents, maybe disaffected Republicans, who said, you know, I've been a Republican my whole life. I'm not going to become a Democrat, but I don't know if I can vote for Donald Trump. Um, you're seeing the exact reverse, that all these people who are saying, I'm definitely going to vote, but I hate everybody, um, are overwhelmingly um, predisposed to vote for Joe Biden. And in a state like Pennsylvania, where we lost by half of a percentage point, I mean, Donald Trump acts like he won Pennsylvania in a landslide. He won Pennsylvania by half of a percentage point. I mean, if I had gotten 6% more people in my district than the neighboring district, um, state house districts, we could have won the state. So I think that there is a contingent of folks who have been failed by the political establishment on, on both sides, but who recognize they need to vote. And I think by and large, those folks are gonna vote for, for Joe Biden. And then we have a you know a responsibility um, as Democrats, if, if folks vote for us, right, to then really deliver. I, I was just looking up the numbers as we were speaking. It was less than fifty thousand votes. Yeah, I think forty-three something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so, uh, yeah, about forty-three, forty-three thousand and some change. Wow. So th this is very important. Um, lastly, um, a lot of people see. Um, themselves in Kamala Harris, from African-American women to uh, Asian-American Pacific Island women, and we won't even get into the Jamaicans. Some of y'all coming for Kamala might want to pull back because these Jamaicans don't play. Once the Jamaicans get behind- All my best friends are randomly like Jamaican, <laughs> and so and they were very excited when she was just- <laughs> Right, right. So, but as how do you see yourself? How important is this to you as a black gay man mm -hmm. to have a woman of color on the ticket, and particularly a woman of color who herself has been a, a groundbreaking ally to the LGBTQIA community? You know what? I think that sometimes when we talk about representation, we talk about it as this like, you know, nice to have, right? Like not necessary, but if we have it, you know, that's, that's fine. It, it matters in a, in a real way, right? When I walk into a committee hearing with locked hair from a working poor family, with all the different intersections of my identity, we are having completely different conversations that even folks who are allies to my story and allies to the different ways that um, the American dream has not been realized for people like me, it's different when you have that lived experience. You, it shifts the way conversations are had. It shifts the way decisions are made. And there's great research on this by McKenzie and others. And so having a, a, a black woman 
And having not just any black woman, but a black woman that is this qualified, people you know, forget California is not just the biggest state in the country, it's the fifth largest economy in the world. The California AG's office is the second largest Department of Justice in the world, bigger than Interpol, okay? And so this is a huge undertaking in terms of uh, the types of bureaucracies that she has understood how to run. And so when you have somebody who is this competent, this qualified, and who also has a lived experience that we've never had in that office, um, not only does that make me feel good to see her up there, but as somebody who really cares about policy outcomes, somebody who, you know, and I like a lot of my colleagues, but I'll tell you, not all of my, my, my colleagues, particularly Republicans, they ain't reading a lot of this crap. So I know a lot of times people think, you know, politicians are so evil. A lot of cases, like Donald Trump, they're just dumb. They don't know what the hell is going on. Um, and, so, and so I think that she's going to have a major impact uh, in terms of young people who are sitting at home who are asking the question, can I actually pursue my dreams? Like that piece of it. But she's also going to have an incredible impact in terms of the policy outcomes because there are blind spots that we all have because of the limits of our identity. And she's going to be able to bring up things. And I know, um, you know, she and, you know, she took on uh, Vice President Biden in the debate. You know, it's been very clear that she is going to be somebody who is going to make her opinion known to the vice president. And I think that that is an incredibly powerful thing. And I'll just end with this note, Mark. I've gotten to really know Joe Biden. And, you know, Joe Biden's been in politics for a long time. You know, he elected the city council at 29. First issue he took on was redlining in his community. He hasn't made every right vote. I think he would say that. But one of the things that really sets him apart, and it was one of the reasons I was so comfortable supporting him so early in this primary process, was that he is somebody who deeply listens to other people. That is a facet of leadership that I think we have completely undervalued, particularly now in the Trump age, right, where he has all these authoritarian uh, tendencies and the media frames everything up. Donald Trump was so strong, so strong. What we need is somebody who's able to lead, but more importantly, somebody who's able to listen, mm. who's able to recognize that they don't have uh, the, 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 the sort of pulse on every single issue. And that there might be areas where they need to hear from somebody else. And that even if they feel like they have the best idea, that the only way you move forward in a sustainable way is if you bring people together and you get buy-in from folks that they were a part of the decision-making. It's a part of the reason he was able to unite the party. Bernie endorsed him five days after he dropped out. He put together these unity panels. And so I just think that that's something for folks who say, oh, well, you know, Joe Biden you know, has not agreed with me on every issue. I can tell you, he is somebody who listens deeply. He is somebody who doesn't have an ego about him, that everything has to be his idea. And I think that that's going to be something we really need as we start to think about how do we rebuild this country. Folks representing the 181st district in the state of Pennsylvania. What, what, what area is that? It's that's right in the heart of North Philly. Right in North Philly. Amen. Uh, our state representative Malcolm Kenyatta, I'm certain we're going to be hearing much, much more and many, many great things from our brother, uh, Representative Kenyatta. Thank you, man. Thank you so much, Mark. Stay safe. Very proud of you. Yes, sir. 
God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.